2: Hello and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talise, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kamisha Russell, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Affiliated Faculty in Disability Studies at the University of Oregon. Her book the Assisted Reproduction of Race, is just out from Indiana University Press. Assisted Reproductive Technologies, or ARTs, such as in vitro fertilization and surrogacy, have been critically examined within philosophy, particularly by feminists and bioethicists. But the role of race, both in how the technologies are used and in the effects that they are having, has received less attention. In the Assisted Reproduction of Race, Kamisha Russell undertakes this critical analysis. While there is a robust scientific consensus that there is no meaningful genetic basis for race, Russell's analysis of the role of race in ARTs reveals that when it comes to producing kinship, race is still doing a great deal of work. Further, by arguing that race itself is a technology, Russell shows how race is both produced and productive, historically, as well as in everyday practices, techniques, and choices. While this analysis focuses on what race does in the contemporary realm of ARTs, it illuminates the role of race in the past and now in constructing social reality. Hello, Kamisha. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, So will you start out by telling us a bit about yourself, about your background as a philosopher, and and your interests philosophically? Sure. Um,
1: Yeah, so uh, my interests are in critical philosophy of race, uh, bioethics, and feminism. Um, And yeah, I sort of came to philosophy with a focus or, or through uh, things uh, intended towards diversity. So um, one of the things that I did that helped me decide to go to grad school was to go to the Rutgers Summer Institute in Philosophy for Minority Students um, and while I was there, uh, women were actually really underrepresented among uh, not only the uh, students that were attending, but also uh, the people who presented to us, the faculty members um, who were drawn from around the country. Um, so, uh, so yeah, in an interesting way, even while kind of at a diversity institute, I was also noticing other, um, other problems with representation. Um, so I s- sort of uh, joined philosophy in spite of some of the things that I saw or that I thought were, um, or just perhaps driven to, uh, to join it because of that. Um, so I've had always had this, uh, you know, desire to kind of push at the boundaries of philosophy. Um, and I think that's probably, uh, what sort of led to this book to, or this project to become my dissertation. And then the revision of that dissertation to become this book was, yeah, this, this desire to kind of, um, tackle things that philosophy doesn't normally tackle and seeing what, uh, bring a philosophical lens to, um, to issues that philosophy has not normally taken up, what that can do.
2: I see. Um, and so this book grew out of, it sounds like, even quite early experiences in the discipline of philosophy. Yeah, I think so. You know, you kind of look back and you sort of see it more clearly than I
1: think you you would be able to uh, at the time. But but yeah, I think it um, the book kind of represents um, yeah me figuring out how what kind of philosopher I wanted to be and how I wanted to engage philosophically. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a, definitely a problem-based uh, philosophical, uh, philosophical thinker. Uh, you know, I don't um, you know, focus on figures and things like that, but I really want to use a variety of different resources to kind of look at and illuminate problems that I find interesting.
2: Yeah, and I found that to be um, a feature of your, of your book is that you do draw in many thinkers from many different places sort of as needed when you're looking at something and working through a problem, you um, you're sort of rangy where you're willing to look to bring in the help that you need for thinking through a problem. Um, Yeah. So, and you position your work as a contribution to the critical philosophy of race. And so there's um, quite robust discussion of critical philosophers of race. Um, And I found your overview in the introduction incredibly helpful for setting up sort of an understanding of the debates about the reality of race, what race is. But you are very clear that your project isn't about what race is. Your interest is in understanding what race does. Um, so how social realities are produced and productive of race. Um, so would you explain this shift? So you, you do that nice setup and then you say, but that's not really what I'm doing here. So will you explain that kind of move from is to does? Yeah,
1: um, so I mean, part of it was uh, part of the point of kind of starting with that in the introduction um, is to kind of challenge, I think, I think there's this sort of prevalent idea socially that, um, that if we say that race is made up, then that's, that's a way to kind of get away from all the problems that race or racism have caused us and that, that this is sort of a, a approach that we can take and and, and this sort of underlying feeling that um, that maybe people should just stop talking about race and I feel like that's very um, prominent in our culture but but it's also I think you know there are people academically as well who who have this feeling um, and so I kind of wanted to um, to address that in a way that um, yeah and to, to make it clear why it's important to uh to continue to think about race and I thought that um you know a good way to do that would be to um to move away from this debate about whether it's real or not because it seemed to me that what people are always getting at when they're debating whether race is real is whether they should still be talking about it or what they should be talking about um so I think that when you think about uh when you try to think about what race does um I see this as a sort of um enhancement of social constructivism or even uh, even something that social constructivism knows what people misunderstand about it. Um, so not only sort of this idea that, you know, something that's socially constructed is made up in some kind of way, but it's um, but really with this idea of doing that, that it that it's made up in order to do something. It's not just made up kind of for fun or just um, as some sort of uh, cognitive error, but it's actually, you know, these are uh, an idea like race and other social constructions circulates and does things. It, it affects things socially, politically. Um, you know, so I wanted to kind of bring that into focus, which I think is also very helpful um, for for recognizing and addressing the fact that race hasn't always been understood in the same way across time and place. Um, so you know when we're trying to, if we're trying to sort of say if it's real, then, we have to determine what you even think it is to even think if that thing is real. And I don't think that's been steady uh, across time and place. So I think that when we think about what something like a concept of race does, um, we can then also kind of zero in on different times and places and, and, and look, okay, here's this idea. Here's what people thought about this idea and then here's how it affected the sort of social conditions or here's how it was used to shape um, you know, politics at this time. Right. So for me, it's, it's a way to um, sort of draw people away from a sort of superficial understanding of race as a social construction and really encourage them to think about um, why we make these things up. What do we do with them? Why are they so important for us?
2: What led you to de- decide to stage that kind of work in assisted reproductive technologies? Why well, look at ARTs to do that, um, focus on how social reality is built through things like race?
1: Yeah, so it actually kind of went the other way around for me. I, I developed an interest in thinking about race in reproductive technologies. Uh, and then uh, while kind of doing that, um, came to this idea of, of, thinking about what race does. Um, I actually, uh, I think I tell this story in the book, um, but I was at a feast conference, uh, in Florida, you know, way back, um, and, uh, I was in the hotel room and, and what I don't do in the morning when I, in my normal life is turn on the television and watch morning talk shows. But what I frequently do if I'm in a hotel is turn on the television <laughs> and see what's on. Um, and so good morning America was on and they were talking about, um, surrogacy in India and so uh there, as a sort of form of uh, you know outsourcing kind of uh connecting it to the idea of Indian call centers in some kind of way, but um so they they had this story about this couple that had um had sought uh, an Indian surrogate and um, they they had this this bit of copy that was um you know. I think it's Michael and Tracy. Michael and Tracy, you know, admit that this idea of this Indian surrogate is is weird, but um, this couple is colorblind. They just want a baby, um, and I was just really struck by this use of the term colorblind. Um, which you know I, I find problematic at the best of times, but it was just such a strange um, moment for me, and so I, I was kind of fascinated by that, and it, it really stuck with me. And I uh, actually looked up later um, on the the website, looked up the story, and that the, and the word colorblind didn't actually appear. So I actually had to go to LexisNexis to find the actual transcript of what they'd actually said in you know, on this uh, on this episode, and and there it was. But so it's, it's interesting. It was even sort of got taken away. <laughs> Later, when somebody had uh, had control of the text, um, was struck
2: by that in the book. When you told, do you have a theory about why they took that out of the transcript? Yeah, I don't. You know, I mean, like
1: I said, they, they put it on the on the website without it. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was that, um, you know, that the commentator actually added it in and it wasn't part of what was there or if somebody while putting it on the website thought, Oh, this is a little weird or it might be controversial or I don't know. But yeah, it was, so that so it's funny. It, it, not only did it strike me at the moment, but then it was like such a mystery around uh, its disappearance. I wondered, you know, like, did I hear something like what, why would I have, you know, made that up? Um, so it's good. I found it, but um but yeah, so that was sort of that sort of started me um, thinking about reproductive technologies a little bit. I think I also heard another story on NPR, and I can't remember what it was. I think it was about whether embryos were property, and I thought that was also very strange. Um, that you know that this seemed a, an odd way to think about embryos. But um, so I had this so I had this idea that I was interested in, in looking at uh, reproductive technologies in, in some way, and then. Um, started to kind of look into that um, and realize that what I was really interested in was this role of race in reproductive technologies and that there had not been a ton written on it and that compared to, um, to feminist criticisms um, around gender of reproductive technologies, which there have been a lot of, really, I mean, you know, from as early as, um, as these were imagined um, and especially as they became, you know, more of uh, a reality, you know, feminists have been wondering what, what does this mean for mothering and parenthood and women's rights and their, you know, control over their bodies and all those kinds of things. But there was just very little um, on race. And there's been a little more um, sort of at the same time that I've been working on this. Other people um, have been working on this. So there are a few more books now. But the time that I started writing this, it was sort of a smattering of, of different articles. Um and one book um, that is, you know, has started this whole field in a certain way, this whole race and reproduction thing, um, is Dorothy Roberts's book *Killing the Black Body*. And I also read that as I was trying to think about this project and trying to kind of develop it. Um, and she talks about uh, new technologies. It's her last chapter in that book, um, but. Yeah, it's, it's still it's only you know it's only the sort of end of a long and careful and fascinating historical um you know and legal look that she um that she gives uh, the topics of re- the topic of race and reproduction so um yeah, so there was a lot that felt like there was a lot more to say especially um the way that uh that these things develop um you know she had only sort of You know, in uh, I want to say it was probably 1990. It was only sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what was going to become sort of common practice in reproductive technologies. And Roberts has continued to write on those things, Um, but um, but yeah, but a lot more uh, articles and things uh, in that direction. So I I found a lot of different interesting articles, but just not yeah, not what I thought was a thorough treatment, and certainly not one that was informed uh, by. A sort of philosophical background. So
2: great, and you set up the book through this distinction between race theory and the race idea. And I think this, I think this distinction that you make helps would help our listeners understand why technology becomes such a powerful um, lens through which you explore the construction of social reality. Um, so, do you mind just explaining that difference between? race theory and the race idea and especially how ideas of race or race idea is sort of impervious to criticism. Um, whereas race theories can be criticized and worked through, but the race idea isn't, isn't the same sort of um, creature.
1: Yeah. So um, so this is a distinction that was drawn by Eric Vogelin, a German born political theorist working in Austria um, during the rise of national socialism in Germany. So in the thirties, um, he has um, has this essay about um, about the growth of the race idea. I mean he you know, has a really long historical uh, approach to it as well, which is um, you know more europe centric which is always a, a-, a tension I think um, when we're talking about history of race is kind of what happened in the us and uh, what came from europe but um but uh, so he but he talks about um, yeah race theory as this sort of Um, endeavor of the natural sciences as this sort of attempt by science to um, to explain what races are how they're categorized who belongs to what how that all kind of works where that comes from where it goes Um, but then he also he talks about the race idea as a fundamentally political concept Um, and so he really uh, and so he really you know sort of Talks in technological terms about um, race as a tool for sort of defining and shaping communities as something that um, gets used, and I mean he he points to um, to Germany uh, as well, uh, you know, talking about sort of this definition of communities and who belongs as a part of what and and for the political use of those ideas. And so for him, we uh, and and it's what's really interesting. is I think there's a lot of um, I think our thinking about race circles around a lot in ways that we don't recognize because we don't think a lot about the We don't know the history of race very well. Um, so, you know, so he's already in the thirties talking about how, um, this dis, this this idea that we'll just sort of disprove um, the sort of natural science race theories um, is is not enough, right? So he, I mean, so already this thing that I think we imagine we've been doing recently that people weren't doing before, um, disproving race science, he's, he's already talking about in the '30s and and talking about how people. Are we are a little bit wasting their time doing this um, because what's really driving the development of these theories of these race theories is this race idea right this sort of fundamental belief in the idea of human difference and the usefulness of that belief for um, shaping communities and um you know and making different uh, political uh moves as, as a, you know so thinking about race as a political symbol yeah so um so he really thinks that that, um, what we, he calls for um, attention to the race idea instead of just race theories, instead of just disproving the science or challenging the science or even trying to prove the science um, he calls for the sort of description and analysis of the development and function of the race idea so that we should be involved in thinking about what is this idea, how is it working, how is it developed what does it do and that that is a more powerful and less, um, less taken path to really thinking about what's going on with race.
2: Speaking of race ideas, the, the title of your, first cha- of your first chapter is Reproductive Technologies Are Not Post-Racial. And I think post-racial is a very powerful race idea, given the definition you've just given us and that distinction, um, right? The idea of a post-racial world or a post-racial society isn't grounded in a scientific theory so much as it is uh, an idea that's, very much shaping social reality. Um, so I was hoping you'd tell us a little bit why you need to make this clear for readers, why you need to make clear that reproductive technologies are not post-racial.
1: Yeah, I think, um, so there's, I guess there's sort of two things. Um, I mean, one, um, you know, sort of just to emphasize that when people are making um, reproductive decisions, they're not doing it um, in a world that's already post-racial. I mean, so, so part of it's just, you know, the sort of critique of post-racial generally, but, but also to actually, uh, one of the very simple things that I seek to point out in that chapter um, is that people that gametes, right, uh, donor egg and donor sperm, um, they're always uh, racially labeled, right? So there's this really just sort of clear sense in which the category of race is very operative within um, assisted reproductive technologies, right? And no one's even trying to pretend it's not there, let alone the fact that, you know, I mean, which which is, yeah, part of the sort of post-racial idea is sort of pretending, but but they're not even really pretending um, in this. Like, people are, are very aware of it. And I think this is, you know, a little bit even what that sort of um, use of the word colorblind kind of indicates, right? Is that... Even when um, they're trying to kind of make a sort of post-racial comment, um, a, a seemingly post-racial comment um, about uh, Michael and Tracy's surrogate journey, um, they are the, the idea. You know, they know that this question about this difference um, between um, this Western couple and this Indian surrogate is there, right? So, they, so even you know, in sort of trying to deny it, they have to address it. Um but yeah like i mean like i said the most obvious way is just to kind of look at um sperm donor websites or egg donor websites um and even to look at um you know advertising um and and the and the websites themselves besides the drop down categories which um you know typically include racial and ethnic categories that sort of varies how they're labeled um but also um in yes you, know, you can find sort of uh pages that talk about the diversity of their donors right so there's a, there's a strong awareness um that people uh are looking to uh you know that they it matters to them when they're looking for um a, you know an egg or, or a sperm that the racial identity or the sort of you know and, and so yeah i mean i guess this is this is the sort of tricky part um is that what they're talking about—the label—is always just people's self-identification applied to this um, this genetic material. Um, but but by doing that, right, by sort of taking the the donor's background information and taking it down in the terms that um, that we're used to in terms of describing one's um, you know heritage or or um, racial uh, identity, and then attaching it to the um, the genetic material, right, the the gamete, um, and detaching it from the person, but keeping those labels, you you give this sort of pseudogenetic uh, s- uh, status to race, right? You you put with um, what is now sort of thought of as sort of pure biological material, and you put these um, these sort of self identified uh, racial categories onto it. So then you know it gives this impression that the sperm is black, this is black sperm, or this is white sperm, right? That that somehow the the, the gamete itself contains this racial identity. Um, so, it's, it's a, so it's a very fascinating sort of um, process. So yeah, this first chapter, um, and I thought a lot about this organization of, of the work, um, was just sort of designed to give some real concrete examples of why we should talk about race and reproductive technologies. So where the rest of the book does more sort of historical and theoretical work, the the first thing I really wanted to do was just sort of let people know that people are using race when they are, um, you know, using reproductive technologies and and to give sort of a a sort of um, overview of some of the ways that that's being done.
2: Yeah, I was struck. I think it's in this chapter you mentioned the sperm bank that would that used like color coding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the little felt like very there was sort of a it's it went beyond just being pseudogenetic to being sort of like, we can just color code these vials and then you'll know what you're getting um in this file. So do you mind talking about that?
1: Yeah. Um
2: yeah, so that was uh I think
1: California Cryobank. Um yeah, and um, yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't there, but uh, they reported to have um, to have yeah color coded their vials of sprint to prevent racial mix-ups. And so what's interesting about as well is, and what what leads what what further emphasizes this way in which um, these technologies are not post racial, is the things that get a lot of uh, media time are these sort of racial mix-ups, right? So when somebody um, gets uh sperm or, or you know usually sperm um the the egg donation process is a little less anonymous typically um but uh sperm from uh from somebody who identifies differently racially than they were expecting right so yeah so the so the the measure by california cryobank was to um you know reduce the chance of racial mix up. so they had uh, you know i think it was all, it was it was all bad. Um, but <laughs> all the colors are bad. I don't even know if I want to go into it. But um, but yeah, they really sort of took these um, these color associations that we that we make with different races that are highly problematic, and you know sort of embodied them literally on these vials. Um, you know, this was would obviously not be something that customers would be directly looking at or anything like that. But th- you yeah, know, I think it was more a measure for the um, people working there to um, to not mess up. But but it's interesting, right? Because I mean, you know, um, in theory, any time they would not give you the right vial that you had asked for, that would be a mistake. But uh, but what the color coding is designed to prevent is a particular kind of mistake, which is not to be particularly egregious.
2: Um, so as you began to explore this area of assisted reproductive technologies, it seems like in the book, um, you came to using philosophy of technology to think through these things that that you're uncovering and encountering and and to understand them. So we talk a little bit about why you needed to move beyond bioethics and how you got to using the philosophy of technology as a, as a means for understanding um, this area.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, in, in bioethics is interesting because it's it, philosophy lays a certain claim uh, to it, but it also um, is extremely interdisciplinary. So you have, um, You know, bioethical work coming from a lot of different places, both within the academy and, um, and outside of it. So uh, yeah, so, uh, but yet, uh, I think, especially when philosophers are doing bioethics, um, it, it really often takes on a very individual focus. Um, You know, what can this individual rightfully do or not do? Um, you know, how how should, you know, what uh, what needs to be respected in terms of a clinician or practitioner or researcher in terms of the individual, but really kind of focus on individual rights and, and what's permissible or not permissible. Um, and I think that, yeah, I'm sure other people who've worked on, uh, you know, things like this would agree. I mean, you, you read about people who are trying to have children or, you know, who are struggling with infertility, um, and you you just don't want to judge them individually, ethically, right? It's just, it doesn't feel comfortable or right. Um, So you have a sense that there, or I had a sense that people are involved in doing things that, um, that have these intense social meanings and, and some of them are very problematic social meanings, but at the same time, um, yeah, I wasn't. I didn't feel that I could or would want to kind of say you're, you know, this person's allowed to do this and this person isn't. So, um, so what? What I like about the Fosio technology um, is that it, it sort of takes a different approach, um, not as sort of you can do this or you can't do this as much, but really, what? What? How is technology changing or shaping our lives? How? And and also, how do which technologies develop? How does that? Um, come out of a particular uh sort of social organization in the first place. So, you know, what kinds of technologies are we driven to make? What kinds of problems are we driven to solve? Who gets to determine which kinds of problems we're trying to solve? And and then as we're doing that, um you know, kind of what uh what are the un unintended effects of sort of a new technology? in in our lives um so uh i I use these questions from neil postman uh, to organize the chapter um and his questions are what is the problem to which this technology is the solution and uh whose problem is it right so for um for thinking about uh reproductive technologies um i think well okay we think of them as a sort of um solution to infertility and we think of that infertility, or at least it has been thought of in the development of the technologies, as belonging to um, basically uh, white women of some means um, in heterosexual marriages who, um, who are infertile. And especially, um, you know, given sort of the advent of this uh, in the late 70s, or the, the success of uh, certain reproductive technologies in the late 70s, right, it's also associated with women um, with white women, you know, this desire to be in the workforce in a particular way and all that kind of stuff. So, we, you know, and, but, but when we look at things, we actually find out that, um, you know, poor women and women of color are for, are for a variety of reasons, social reasons and environmental reasons, uh, more likely to be infertile, right? So the, the particular type of infertility that gets focused on is sort of delayed childbearing, among white middle class uh, women, so and and we can sort of see how the technology sort of follows that problem and, and sort of works to solve that problem, as opposed to um, addressing other sources of infertility, for example, um, or or questions about family formations, possible family formations, and and improving equality. And then so the, the, his next two questions are which people and what institutions might most be most seriously harmed by a technological solution and what new problems might be created because we have solved this problem. I mean, this is where I really look at, um, you know, following on that Good Morning America story, um, at gestational surrogacy um, and the advent of, of surrogacy that doesn't involve the egg of the, of the surrogate, right? So where the surrogate is not um, genetically related to the child she's carrying. Um, So as that technology um, became more effective and um, more marketable, uh, you end up with this whole sort of stratification of women um, where you can um, sort of see, for example, Indian women as uh, the sort of potential surrogates and, you know, who who live in... I mean, so this India has actually uh, outlawed foreign surrogacy. So it, it sort of was this... Time in which everyone was started paying a lot of academics started paying attention to kind of what was going on there and a lot of news stories were written but um, and and now it's it's moving elsewhere although it's still in a variety of places but um, but yeah you have these women who are like in these hostels where they are um, pregnant you know with babies from all or, you know, whose parents are from all over the place and um, and it sort of sets up this whole thing, right? Um so, so that's what I sort of talk about in this sort of idea of like what you know, what new problems might we create, this sort of possibility for New forms of exploitation that are related to old forms, um, but sort of take on this new um, this new character um, and then his last two questions are what sorts of people and institutions might acquire special economic and political power because of technological change and what changes in language are being forced by new technologies and what is being gained and lost by such uh, changes and I use that as a way to think about um, sort of the power of whiteness and and what that 's doing um, in reproductive technologies and you know, how, um, and the sort of assumptions about, uh, whiteness and who's sort of fit to reproduce and who ought to be, um, who will be good mothers and who ought to be convinced to become mothers and that, and who ought to be discouraged from becoming mothers, right? Where I sort of talk about all those, um, those elements, just, you know, thinking about and, and the language of the natural, what is, what is natural and unnatural. So, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it just provides a broader way of thinking about, um, The way that um, a new a new technology, a new medical technology, um, can shape uh, shape things, and and the way that already existing inequalities determine which kinds of uh, which things get pursued, especially you know in in a commercial setting, right, where you're going to want to market uh, these technologies to people, then you're going to want to solve the needs of people who you believe will be able to pay you to solve their problems.
2: Yeah, I was struck by I was struck by the way that your framing using philosophy of technology um, really illuminates how focused um, ARTs have been. Um, the development of ARTs have been towards a, a sort of set of problems and help helping a set of people, and you you bring out how this has all these ripple effects globally, and I sort of another turn of this that you observe is that even in coverage of um, gestational surrogacy, for instance, it's not as though India was the only place where it was happening, um, but there was intense focus on India. And you say, but there's not this kind of intense focus journalistically or academically on, for instance, Poland, another place where gestational surrogacy has has been an important industry. Um, And it seems, and so part of what you're saying is, even there in the coverage of ARTs, we're seeing um, race having these productive effects. There's a reason why people want to focus on India over say Poland as a site where this is happening. This, um, these different industries are getting set up. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. It's it's so, I mean, I think,
1: and again, I feel this is part of what was kind of going on with this like colorblind language and the sort of way that this good morning America story went like it sort of makes for a very interesting story um, and it is sort of more sensational. It sort of draws the eye, but also um, I feel like it allows for, to, uh, it allows them to kind of bring up and at the same time dismiss particular tensions. Um, and I think the sort of exacerbation at, at the same time as the denial of the sort of racial difference um, allows allows it to seem natural that in some way that, uh, that the child that this surrogate is going to carry is going to kind of return to them. So yeah, there is, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's simplistic, but it is, um, it's, a, it's a, it's a worry that I, I think people are trying to kind of address, but, but often in coverage in a way that um, that doesn't sort of, at least in American coverage, that doesn't kind of condemn the practice wholesale um yeah so yeah it's it's really fascinating.
2: Um so will you tell us now then what what does it mean to think of racist technology we've been talking about how you have used um the philosophy of technology and the way that for instance Neil Postman's questions um become so productive for you. So what does it mean when you say we should think of racist technology?
1: Yeah, this is a very good question. Uh, I, still, I in some ways, maybe I still struggle with. So, you know, what I ended up doing in the uh, in the book is to not um, to not think that I had to mean only one thing by that. So, what I ended up doing was sort of drawing connections with different discussions of technology and different uses um, of sort of the idea of technology. Um, to kind of draw out different uh, things about how we use race and, and, and kind of how it appears. So, yeah, so I wanted I, – I thought it – I guess I, I thought it was worth trying to think of it this way, but I'm, you know, it's not to say that I think it's the only way to think about race, or everyone must immediately begin to think about race in this way, or they'll simply be wrong, or whatever. But really, just kind of sit to it for me, it worked um, to sort of think through it in this way, and I did it um, you know in a, through a different uh, through a variety of different um, things. So there was the sort of use of um, of Neil Postman's philosophy technology questions to think about um, how race appears in, um, in reproductive technologies and discourses around it. Uh, And then there's also just sort of um, a chapter where I just kind of talk about um, how philosophers, how some philosophers of technology see technology and how we might sort of see race analogously. Um, So there uh, I'm just kind of, trying to emphasize that um First of all, that it you know that the you know sort of technologies don't um, don't come from a sort of neutral background, and they're not they're not the obvious thing that needs to happen. They um, you know they, they may seem that way looking back, or for or for the sort of group of people that's involved in developing them, but but actually um, you know they're very contingent on the sort of background conditions, the problems that a group of people have, the means that those people have to define what are seen as the general problems of their society, and so on. And so forth, and I think that races is, is very much like this, um, in that um, different societies will sort of create and deploy different racial categories, again according to kind of the shape of it, um, the shape of the society, what's what's kind of going on. Um, and that, but I, and I was also really interested in. Um, this sort of uh, resistant or sort of unplanned use of technology. Um, so I think at one point I have um, an analogy with like the internet, right. Um, and where it's um, you know developed as a part of a sort of military project um, and with the use of the government, but we see a lot of um, sort of, Counter government activity online as well, right? We see, you know, things like WikiLeaks or whatever. Um, so yeah, sort of. So I was interested in the way that race is like this too, especially you know, with, going back to this idea that maybe we should just stop talking about race, or maybe we're sort of overly attached to a bad concept. Um, yeah, and so, so I wanted to be able to also think about race as something that might have been invented, you know, in sort of a nefarious way, but uh, but that also has become a part of people's positive identities and has been used as a form of resistance against uh, various forms of racial oppression and, and things like that so yeah so there's there's a sort of a, a sort of more straightforward analogy to kind of um how technology the role of technologies in our society kind of how they come to be developed how they can be used how they can be used against themselves um and this sort of um Idea, and then uh, I also uh, use um, Heidegger and Foucault in, in more specific ways um, to to talk about um, you know in the one ca- in the case of Heidegger to talk about um, eugenics, and in the case of Foucault to talk about sort of uh, neoliberal um, eugenics, basically, um, but sort of <laughs> of neoliberal uh, uses of reproductive technologies to make decisions about the kinds of children that we have. Um, So they each, you know, they're each doing uh, different things, but I am sort of, yeah, drawing on each one in turn to, I hope, uh, illuminate a particular sort of circumstance um, in which uh, race is developed or used or deployed.
2: Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about each of them, about um, Heidegger's view of technology as a way of revealing? um, And then about Foucault and... um, yeah, that critique of neoliberalism. How you use both of those to work this idea of of racist technology? Yeah. Um.
1: So yeah, with the Heidegger. Um. Yeah. So um, Yeah, I was, I've been fascinated ever since I first read it. Um. By um, Heidegger's question concerning technology, essay. Um. And actually, uh, Sheth also um has used. Um, that essay to talk about race uh, as well. And I, and I read her, um, it was originally an article and then it appeared in her book as well. Um, so I'd, I'd read the article, this um, is before the book came out um,
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off?
1: Yeah, so um, so for Heidegger, um, you know, technology is not just uh, about the sort of object um, that is created or used, but it's really about um, this view of the world of objects, uh, or of um, sort of, uh, materials in nature as um transformable into objects for human purposes and then you know the sort of and then those objects are in turn used to uh, sort of harness nature further right um so this sort of this sort of view of the world as for human use um is, is is what um what heidegger is getting at and i and i thought that was very Interest, it was very interesting to think about um, race as, as being, uh, you know, again, this thing that we, this idea, this thing that we see in, in nature um, and, um, oops, oh, dang, sorry, um, so this, as this thing in nature um, that we, you know, the, these human differences that we see in nature and then we come to understand uh, through some sort of other sense of, of purpose. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, um, that for me was useful, uh, in, in the chapter where I was specifically looking at the sort of history of race and, uh, the development of eugenics, because I think there's a very, there's a very interesting relationship. There's a lot of arguments about, um, our new technologies and capabilities to, um, improve people if you want to talk about it that Mm way. and, you know, one sort of move is to say, okay, you know, it's not that improving people is bad. It's just that it's bad if you're, you know, very racist or if you're not very good at it, um, which is sort of one way that some scientists who support sort of contemporary um, eugenic technologies try to separate themselves uh, from um, sort of the, the bad eugenics culminating in, but certainly starting way before uh, Nazi Germany. Um so you know so their idea is that well okay its it's really about you know sort of the intention of the user of the technologies and to some degree about the effectiveness of the technologies so you you shouldn't sort of undertake uh eugenic projects with bad tools um and or with bad intentions um and so that, and then there's another sort of um you know there's troy duster's book backdoor to Eugenics right there's another sort of view that all eugenics are kind of the same um which I'm which I'm super sympathetic to but it but it seems like maybe it's just too simplistic you're never going to kind of um, get at what's really going on there just by thinking they're the same um, so what I wanted to get at using Heidegger was the sort of what I think is a sort of underlying approach to the world that um, that eugenics and race have in common whether or not you then want to apply eugenics specifically according to uh, sort of goals that are perceived to be racial goals or sort of, you know, improvement of the race. Um, and I, and it is, I, I think it's, this, is what, I, what I think Heidegger identifies is this really strong human drive to mastery, to, um, to master and control nature um, for human purposes. And so I think that, that, that sort of underlying drive to mastery um, is reflected in projects of eugenics, um, early ones and contemporary ones, and is reflected in this um, this idea of race. Because I think that you know, in the beginning, um, sort of taking human differences and organizing them into this concept of race was about understanding nature in a way that was never just about understanding nature. So that, that's part of the argument um, is that even. Early conceptions of race before people are trying to actually um, take charge of how a race develops or, or, or strengthens or weakens. Um, still, there's this in this desire to understand. We're always thinking about how we can take control of or improve um, natural processes. So. Yeah. So the, the point is for me, I guess, to sort of bring together, uh, bring, bring this way of thinking to the fore and, and say that it's, it's a way that really connects these very disparate um, eugenic projects and the, the very race concept itself. And we're always going to have these things, these ideas entangled with each other. And they're always going to be dangerous ideas that come with this idea of taking control of nature to eugenics, even if, um, they're not accompanied by a sort of overt form of racism or white supremacy. Um, so that was Heidegger. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. Very long answer. Um, and then with Foucault. No, but very helpful. Very helpful. Good. Uh, and then with Foucault, um, I think, uh, yeah, thinking about this, um, and, and it, it really connects for me strongly with uh, something that Dorothy Roberts uh, talks about, which is this um, this way in which these kind of new technologies um, produce these um, expectations that people will sort of take control of and manage their own um, sort of reproduction and future um, and the production of of good children. Um, so she really associates. Um, um, the the tech, the ways in which uh, some people are discouraged from reproducing, um, the sort of technologies that try to prevent certain people from having children, with also the ones that, um, you know, things like prenatal genetic testing that really encourage those people that are encouraged to have children to have um, the right kind of children and to really... Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a very, uh, ableist conception. Um, but she talks about the way that that sort of, um, that both, both discouraging, say, black women, especially poor black women, from having children and encouraging um, white women to have non-disabled children and to um, therapeutically abort um, children who are projected to have disabilities, that both of those things are about um, this idea of personal responsibility and placing responsibility for social issues uh, onto individual people for their individual decisions. So um, poverty becomes not about um, you know the social conditions that create and sustain poverty, but about the fact that poor people reproduce when they shouldn't. And if they would just sort of stop having children, they just wouldn't be poor anymore, um, which is not true.
2: Um, but uh, <laughs> but, right, so, but the yeah. way that these, yeah, the certain sort of understanding this neoliberal understanding of the situation um, sort of makes available that choice model as the explanation for why people exactly are impoverished, yeah. Yeah, and so then similarly,
1: um, you know, if, if we're talking about uh, people with disabilities, right, the, the onus can become on the family uh, because they, they should have known better, they had the opportunity not to have a child with particular needs, um, and that sort of takes away um, focus from... Uh, you know, the way that society might be able to address a wider variety of human needs um, and, and offer support for that. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, I th- so Foucault, I think, with, um, with his sort of um, work on neoliberalism and on uh, sort of the um, entrepreneur that one becomes of oneself, um, I think provides a good uh, theoretical framework for thinking about how people make what seem to be individual choices, um, under, um, you know, immense, uh, social pressures, uh, and a sense of responsibility, um, and with a significant reliance on, on experts, particular experts to, uh, understand and tell them what, how to sort of maximize, uh, their potential.
2: Right. And I, in and... I want to return to that in a minute because you have a chapter. The fifth chapter is about Foucault and where I think you really bring out those dynamics. Um, but I want to talk a little bit, go a little earlier than Foucault because in the third chapter, you give this technological history of race that I found fascinating. Um, and it's it seems to me like in that chapter, you're showing how um, race, eugenics, and racism um developed and how, um, these thinkers like, like Kant, for instance, um, is not only trying to think about racial categories, but, um, is sort of developing a sense of how races is produced and can be productive. Um, and that in that chapter, um, you're sort of setting up the possibility of the assisted reproductive technologies that we have now and the sort of situation in which people are having to make what look like, what are personal choices, but which are highly structured by, um, by the situa- the race ideas that are dominant now. Um, and so this chapter seems like a deep dive into that history and giving us that technological history of race. So will you talk about that a little bit, um, about why it's important to understand that history yeah, um, so I think
1: that um, there's this idea, and I, so, I mean, it's all kind of connects uh, to things we've already been talking about, but um, there's this idea that kind of um, race science was sort of this, just this sort of scientific error. It was just kind of people not understanding things correctly um, and that we just kind of corrected that, so that's kind of all there was to it. Um, and I think that this is a real misunderstanding not only of how race operates today, but actually how it's always operated um, and so, yeah, so part of my goal was to really um yeah get back into uh, it to really show show um this kind of race idea in motion and and to really kind of um, show people that race was very important to people in really interesting ways, um, in the past. And again, not just sort of as this kind of, um, you know, best but now wrong science of the day or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, Kant is an interesting case because, um, you know, uh, my uh, dissertation advisor and friend Robert Berlusconi argues that his is sort of the first, uh, concept of race that really, um, Matches kind of how we think about race in, uh, in contemporary times, um, because he um, he really wants to draw a distinction between uh, a very hereditary one, even though um, you know not all the hereditary science is there at the time. But he really wants to look at okay, well, what are these kinds of um, changes that we see, um, and, and features that we see kind of like things like hair color. He's like, Oh, that just can kind of change within families or something like that. So that's not kind of, it's not a really permanent thing. Um, but you wanted to sort of, yeah, place race as this much more significant, enduring kind of change. And yeah, and he gave, he, he wanted to give a whole background explanation, which involves seeds and things like that, but I don't go into that. But, uh, <laughs> But he, ha- you know, he wants to really like understand, um, you know, how how we have people looking so different, and which kinds of differences are really important. What kinds of um, family resemblances, um, you know, are sort of just by chance, and which ones seem to be more significant. Um, and he, so he wants to sort. He sees race as this much more significant um, thing. And even though he um, he doesn't, you know, Kant uh, rejects the idea of, um, of eugenics um, actually in this early essay, um, but still I think his desire to really understand how race works and his belief that um, understanding these sort of root causes of things is, is much more important than um, than just kind of noticing or classifying different people, um, or, or animals or plants or, you know, all, there's all this classification going on, Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Um, but he really is like, it's not just about, you know, sort of listing features and classifying. He really wants to think about the causes, right? The systemic kind of way in which differences are produced and sustained, um and so and i think that's that's really crucial to our idea of race we don't think of it as the sort of surface thing this sort of mirror thing to kind of note down or something like that but we really we've tended to believe and and still believe that it's really doing something in the world it's really um you know affecting people's actions in the course of history um and i think yeah this is I think this is an idea that some people think that we're past, but it's, I mean, why such an upsurge in white supremacy right now? It has, you know, It's this belief that historically, um, you know, white people, you know, if, if we're talking in the U.S. context, that it was white people that made America great and that, you know, it's, if you don't sort of, you try to hold them back, you know, you're just going to destroy the country. Um, So this real, it was a real historical understanding of the contributions of a race to a way of life. Right. Um, So I think it's very present uh, contemporarily, but I think we, a lot of us sort of don't think that's still the case or we, you know, so but I, but what what I what I like about or what I try to do in the chapter in part is to really draw that connection between sort of how we think about race now and ideas about eugenics and the very origin of the concept in this idea of understanding nature and then being able to um, to really control it.
2: Another way, I mean, what you just said made me think about people who were sort of baffled by the uprising in Ferguson, for instance, um, the way that that contemporary sort of like um, the invisibility of how the race idea is still structuring things that that sort of bafflement at at the events in Ferguson could have been produced in the first place given conditions in Ferguson and what was going on and why people responded to Michael Brown's murder so strongly (laughs) Um, that that it, it seems to me that there's like that work of covering over or of making it seem like this is ancient history or that it's Um, individual belief in race as somehow the root of racism, you talk about this as well in the book, Um, is somehow the problem we should be most focused on, whereas you're bringing us back to these, the way that um, the implication of race and eugenics, um, the way that this interest throughout history has always been tied to a desire for mastery um, and for, for bringing about like racial goods that it goes so far back, but that that's a history that's with us that's still operating in the present.
1: Yeah, and I think I think one of the one of the examples I give to students, if you want to think about race as a technology, is sort of that race is determining um, you know how uh, how people should be treated when they when their police encounter them, right? Um, you know, race is sort of dictating who um, you know who should be brought in unharmed and who um is dangerous and potentially killable um i'll give an example um because another thing i was obsessed with during the time that i was revising this book was um the sort of 30-year retrospective on the oj simpson trial um and there was you know very interesting cultural productions around that at the time um and one one was involved a documentary where um uh, well, first of all, there's the fact that O.J. Simpson sort of stopped seeing himself as Black. But then also, um, there's a, this documentary where this helicopter pilot um, is talking about following the the Bronco as, it, as it's being, you know, this, like, slow-motion police chase that everyone was sort of, you know, riveted to. And, uh, and he talks about how weird it is. And he sort of says, like, basically, you know, he's like, he's, O.J. Simpson isn't black. If you were black, he'd be on the ground, um, you know, with police batons over him. Right. So the sort of idea that what determines your race isn't just your, your physical appearance, but um, the way that you are able to, and supposed to be treated according to uh, sort of social norms. So that's, a, you know, that's, that's what I, tr- I sometimes use when I'm trying to um, explain to students what I, what I mean by uh, racist technology.
2: Yeah, and another another way you talk about racist productive is as producing kinship, um, and and this seems like this is probably a reason that Michael and Tracy, our our couple who went to India for a gestational surrogate, might have chosen India, um, is because there you talk about the way that in, for instance, gestational surrogacy, um, a difference, a racial difference between the people who are going to become the parents and the person who's gestating the baby can help to establish who the quote unquote real parents are. Um, So will you talk a little bit about the way race can be productive of kinship.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, part of what, um, what happens in reproductive technologies is that people, um, you know, people get involved in the production of a child, um, beyond the intended parents. Um, and this is a source, uh, this is often a source of great anxiety, uh, for couples, um, or, or, you know, any individual intending to parent um, through reproductive technologies. But, um, so, yeah. So people uh, want, they want to feel it's their child. They, you know, there's, um, you know, sort of surrogacy um, in, you know and law and our images of it um, have been really shaped by, um, you know, the Mary Beth Whitehead story, for example, where a surrogate, you know, tries to keep um, a child and, um, So and and, and Mary Beth Whitehead was a um, was a traditional surrogate um, in this, you know, which means that, you know, it was her um, her egg. Um, But uh, so I think there's this sort of feeling that um, the more that you can kind of. break up the the claims to parenthood and then um you know and and then focus on those claims those claims that sort of most shore up what um what the intended parents want to happen, right? The, the that's a it's a way of handling the insecurity. So um any kind of differences between the surrogate and um, and the child that's being produced are ways to say that that um, that that surrogate is not the mother. She doesn't have a right to uh, the child. Um, and similarly, we all, we also see it in a sort of um, more positive vein. We you know people are trying to match um, you know egg donors, for example, um, to uh, to their own sort of racial identities or or, or ethnic identities, um, also as a way to kind of connect. Um, themselves to the child that's going to be born uh, through that donor egg or through donor sperm. So Yeah, so I think I think race is just kind of one of several um, resources in terms of identity that um, that people can kind of use to say this is this child really belongs to us, or you know this child is is related to us, or we and this child are alike, and this other person who contributed is is not alike. Um, In the case of surrogates, uh, you know, with with a donors, it's yeah, it's more about similarity between the two, but. Yeah. And so what, when you think about the India case, um, you know, so many factors then um, mitigate against the possibility of an Indian woman trying to keep a a child that she carried um, as a gestational surrogate. Right. Um, She is, you know, probably really needs the money. So you think, okay, well, she's not going to want to do that. Um, You know, she's living far away. Um, You know, she, um, you know, she looks different, she you know you know maybe she wouldn't want to bring home this white baby to her family to raise I mean all these sorts of ideas, but you know, it's, it's sort of this complex of ideas that um that gives power to the contracting couple or person and sort of um yeah, makes the the gestational surrogate seem
2: helpful but not like the real mother yeah. so um i I can imagine somebody listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm gonna use assisted reproductive technologies, but I'm gonna do it ethically, given everything that Kamisha has just laid out. And your chapter on Foucault basically swarts any desire for an individual to <laughs> make that kind of like how to like navigate the drop down menu at the sperm bank, for instance, in an ethical manner. You sort of deny that avenue. Um so will you will you talk about that? Why just how it's sort of like these seemingly deeply personal issues like who you choose as a surrogate or who you choose as an egg donor or whose sperm you use um, what seem like intimate and personal questions are actually wrapped up in these social and political histories that don't make that kind of ethical choice. Really possible. It's it's
1: such a hard thing, you know. So I, I just you know I would hate for people to think like you know that they can't do this because um, I said it's wrong. Like, I mean, really, I that, that's not, right. had that much power, right? right. No, you're, um, and you're but, clear in the box. <laughs> you're clear in the box. About that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know we we just we have the, these ideas, these really um, ingrained ideas about how important race is. Um, but even if we sort of um, so there's. The only sort of choice that you could almost say is ethical, I suppose, it would be to sort of not track this information about um, about donors, um, so that people were just sort of to be surprised um, by by what happened. But but even that, of course, just places people into situations that they're not prepared for. on um, the same way um, that you know, sort of uh, transracial adoption um, can be can be criticized, even though, of course, um, you know, children do well by having parents um, and they probably do well by having culturally do better by having culturally incompetent parents than they do by having no parents at all. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, so it's not, it's not like you're know, doing nothing becomes a good solution either, but, but yeah, I do think that, um, yeah you know, in our society and in other societies uh, along different lines and in different ways, um you know race really matters to how people get taken up and um, and their you know what they need to know to thrive and um all those kinds of things so so, yeah, I think, but I guess, I mean, the easiest way to think about it is maybe with this, um, this case of this uh, Ohio couple who, um, this lesbian Ohio couple who were white, who sued uh, a sperm bank. Um, actually, I think just the woman who was inseminated was technically uh, the plaintiff in the suit, but um, over uh, having, you know, her having been inseminated uh, with the the wrong sperm, which, um, aside from being wrong, was also uh, a racial mix up. So she was inseminated with the sperm belonging to a black donor, um, you know, and sort of gave birth to a visibly mixed race child. And um, in the suit, again, it's not just that um, she was inseminated with the sperm from the wrong donor um, you know which which would be an error on you know on the part of the the sperm bank but also um you know she specifically they specifically mention um, you know that they have that they live in a um, white neighborhood and they're worried about raising the child in that neighborhood they're going they want to move i don't know if they did um you know that they're far away from places where her hair can be done the child's hair that they that their extended family is not very open minded and they're worried about that effect you know, so yeah so so you have you have sort of all these things, and and when you you think okay, well you know had she gotten the the white donor sperm that she was anticipating, and, and you know oh. therefore given birth to a child that appeared white, um, you know none of these would be then problems that they would think about, but they would still socially be problems. It's it's still a problem if your extended family is intolerant. Um, it's still a problem if you um, live in a highly segregated neighborhood. Um, you know, it, so these yeah this idea that um, if we just sort of, uh, mimic nature in a certain way, um, you know, so that white parents have white children, then everything is fine, right? Really, um, just, you know, is a really surface look at the issue. It sort of imagines that, that we're not involved, that, that such, such a person is not involved in racism. And I think what you see when, in the case of the racial mix-up, is the way that um, in their everyday lives, this couple were involved in structures of racism. Not that they were personally themselves uh, behaving Lee or anything like that, but that they were, they were living, you know, sort of particularly segregated life um, in which even their white child would not have um, been sufficiently exposed to diversity so you know so yeah so i think it's but then you also so this is not in the book at all it's something i I heard about recently at a conference um but there's a trend apparently a trend in australia um for people um or there was a trend um people using surrogacy in uh india um to also to rather than seek um a white egg donor from like ukraine or somewhere else which is typical um what and what some of the agencies sort of uh offer to have actually um an indian woman serve as the egg donor and a different Indian woman serve as the surrogate, um, where this is framed as sort of a more ethical approach to surrogacy. But even there, you know, the the person giving this uh, paper about this research um, was talking about, you know, the way that this collapses the two women, the egg donor and um, the surrogate into sort of one sort of image of the Indian woman, um, the ways in which um, it doesn't, you know, Indian heritage is sort of, treated as this thing that you can kind of just then sort of tell your child about even though you, the parents, aren't connected to it, but and that somehow it's, it's worthwhile in some kind of, on its own, as a sort of idea of heritage without sort of cultural, you know, genuine cultural connections with people in India. All these sort of different ideas. So, you know, here I think you have a, a practice that's, you know, uh, this is again among gay men um, in Australia, um, a practice that uh, goes against sort of the norms that I um, that I. Take talk about in the book. But still, um, you know, it, it's, it's not unproblematic. It's still operating within a whole system of um, social and racial inequality. And, um, you know, it's just, it's complex. There are complex situations.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the virtues of your analysis in the book is that while ARTs are your focus, um, you always open up the analysis to how personal and intimate choices are structured. Um, by these larger forces of of um, of society and of of political arrangements, so it's it's not as though it, you you point this out that it's not as though these issues are only coming up in ARTs. It's that they become so um, so clear to us, or they get made dramatic with the Ohio couple with the um, sperm mix-up, or we can look at this practice of surrogacy and egg donation. And then it's sort of pointing back to these structures that are happening all over the place, not just in assisted reproduction and not just in re- reproduction, um, but that assisted reproduction makes them so vivid to us. And so so you're, because you can't just tell us how to behave ethically given um, these problematic structures, your conclusion suggests that we think about... Um, about insecurities. And you say that you're talking about reproductive markets in terms of insecurities, but it, it struck me as a helpful analytic for thinking about quite a lot of things. Um, but so would you talk about what this means to think about reproductive markets in terms of insecurities?
1: Yeah. So, um, so this, I was fortunate enough to be invited to um, sort of speak at a, a conference panel um, at, uh, at UC Davis, where the person organizing it had um, had put the word insecurity in, um, in the title of the, of the topic for the conference. Um, and it was funny because all the members of the panel that I was on, we discussed how we were not initially sure, um, what that had to do with our own work. And so then we like sort of each went about trying to connect it to what we were working on and we all found it highly productive. Um, so, so yeah, my thanks uh, to that, but, um, but yeah, so, um, for me, it was a way to, um, to think about, um, the, you know again this not wanting to sort of hold people individually responsible and really being uh, recognizing why people get involved in these um, in these baby markets in the ways that they do um, and so I, and I think that there are different kinds of insecurities so one of the things that I I, I talk about is that there's sort of the insecurity that would lead one to um, you know to either um, you know donate an egg or serve as a surrogate uh, for money right so' sort of, sort of financial insecurity um you know an intense financial insecurity typically um and you know that's the product of global inequality um and so you know so, but the this sort of and you know si- similarly for adoption right baby markets encompasses um adoption and reproductive technologies that you know people put up, up for adoption because of these sort of large financial and global insecurities as well um, and the and you, and But there's this interesting way then in which people, the people who want uh, surrogates or egg donors or um, adoptable children, right, they rely on these inequalities and this insecurity. Um, but, that, but that reliance is also based in their own uh, insecurities, right? So if you're go- if you are childless, not by choice, and you, you know, dearly, dearly want to have a child, you, you will spend a lot of money, even, um, you know, I mean, unless you um, adopt, if, if, you want, if you want a baby. Um, if you want a, a not baby, you can probably get one for no money.
2: Um, but um, yeah, so there are <laughs> other children right now in Colorado yeah. who would take would take you up on it right now. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah. So t-
1: to be fair. So. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so assuming you want a baby, um, whether you want to um, have that baby, uh, you know, sort of. Be born with your genes, or you know whether you want um, to adopt a baby. You you know you're you're gonna put if if it's a baby you're gonna put a lot of money into it. It, it costs a lot to adopt babies. It costs a lot to um, use reproductive technologies. Um and but not just the money. You 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 are so invested in this idea you you so this is you know such a deeply felt dream and then also you may you know even though you are able to um to come up with the money or or do this on credit or or whatever um you know many people who um who do adoption or reproductive technologies uh don't have don't have thirty thousand forty thousand fifty thousand dollars lying around right so um So even then, you know, you're investing money that um, is more than you can really reasonably afford. um, And you're just investing your time and energy into this deeply held desire to have a child. And so um, I think it becomes then very tempting to exploit things like um, the differences between you and a gestational surrogate living in another country um, to feel certain that having spent all this time and money and invested all this emotional um, energy into something you desperately want to believe that you will have it in the end and that it won't get taken away. Um, So I think, you know, so they're, they're not equivalent insecurities, but I think, I do think, it's helpful to think of both um, buyers and sellers in these markets as um, as being driven by their insecurities, um, whether those are structural or emotional. Yeah, and I think, and, and then I, uh, you know, I I sort of return to the postman questions at this point to sort of say that we could we could think about that. We could talk about what insecurities does a technology try to address? Whose insecurities are they? Um, and what kinds of new insecurities um, might be created, um, and um, you know, and, and and to what extent uh, the existence of the insecurities is necessary for um, you know for for technology to um, to flourish, and and then of course whether there are non technological solutions um, that might um,
2: might do do less of this exploitation of insecurity. I've kept you on here a long time, so I appreciate your time. So, I want to know just briefly what are you working on now? Um, So,
1: I'm I'm co writing a book, um, sort of, uh, which is on um, reproductive justice and um, assisted reproductive technologies with a woman named Kim Mutcherson, um, who's at the law school at Rutgers. So, it's for me, in some ways, a way to, um, to get a little more normative than I was willing to do in the book. Um, I think the reproductive justice framework does allow for um, sort of thinking through these issues in a way that's not individualized, but maybe speaks a little bit more to, um, to what we might want to do. So um, it's, and it's also a way um, with the format of the series that the book will be a part of um, to try to be a little, um, to try to make this a little more accessible beyond philosophy um, so just, you know, to write from a more interdisciplinary perspective, um, you know, with a person from a different discipline and to um, sort of aim at an interdisciplinary audience as well. So yeah, it's, it's in many ways going to you know, sort of uh, take up some of these ideas again, but, um, but within this uh, reproductive justice framework and with a little more uh, normative eye towards things.
2: Well, thank you so much for um, talking with me today. And I I learned so much from the book and it has changed the way I see a lot of things. So thank you again for, for your time and answering my questions. Thank you so much.